Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Romans 8, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 23. It is the number one cause of disability in North America. It is something shared by 40% of homeless people in our country. It is something possessed by about half of the inmates in U.S. prisons. It is something that 25% of Americans 18 years old and above struggle with. And what I'm talking about is mental illness. 25% of people in America 18 years old and up struggle with mental illness. On any given Sunday here, we'll have at least 250 people 18 years old and up in this room, worshiping God on Sunday morning, 250. A quarter of that is 75 people. If these numbers are right, we have about 75 people here this morning who struggle with some kind of diagnosable mental illness. Now, what we're doing here at New Life is going through what we're calling a Q&A sermon series. And I've been taking questions that have been submitted to me by you and seeking to answer them from the Scriptures. Sunday after Sunday, we'll be concluding this series actually next Sunday with the question, what about those who've never heard the gospel? Uh, what's going to happen to them? Uh, we'll do our best to see what Scripture has to say about that. Your prayers for that message would be appreciated. Today's question is this, how should the church care for those with mental illness? Now, I'm going to be referring um, more than once to a book called Troubled Minds by a woman named Amy Simpson. Uh, She grew up with a mother who was schizophrenic, and so she speaks from her own personal experience and gives a lot of helpful information. suggestions to the church about how to care for the mentally ill. I would recommend that book to you, and in that book is given a definition of mental illness, and I have it on the screen here for you. Mental illness, actually this comes from the National Alliance of Mental Illness. It's a medical conditions that disrupt a person's thinking, feeling, mood, ability to relate to others, and daily functioning, and often result in a diminished capacity for coping with the ordinary demands of life. That's the definition of mental illness. So you'll see from that definition that um, it's fairly broad. Sometimes when we think of mental illness, we, we think of people who are you know, in a straitjacket in a rubber room somewhere. You know, that's the stereotype that we get in our minds. But mental illness is much broader than that, affects a number of people. <clears throat> now, the Bible does not address the issue of mental illness explicitly, and so that makes this sermon a a bit of a challenge. Um, We do have some examples that hint at mental illness. First Kings chapter 19, remember the story of Elisha? Uh, He is overcome with depression and is suicidal, so perhaps suffered from some kind of mental illness. In 1 Samuel 21, Uh, David pretends to have a mental illness, 
Uh, it says in the text he pretends to be insane as he's seeking to elude Saul's pursuit of him. Uh, in John chapter 10, we read that the Jews, upon listening to Jesus, thought that he was insane, called him insane. So our Lord has been called insane, certainly wasn't insane, but um, those are probably the clearest references to mental illness that we have in the Scripture. So our passage here this morning is Romans 8, 18 through 23. So let me just say at the outset here, I understand that this passage isn't intended to address mental illness specifically. This passage is not about mental illness, but it does provide for us some theological categories in which we can process and understand uh, this struggle that so many face. So that's why we're going to be looking at this text. If you have that, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 8, 18 through 23. Romans 8, starting with verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father, we call on you, the triune God, to open hearts and minds, to lend power and grace to the preaching of this word, to bring encouragement to those who are laboring under mental illness, to give us hope in the gospel. Do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, three things that I want to point out to you from this text by way of implication from this text. And uh, the first one is something that might seem just a little maybe obvious, but I think it deserves to be talked about. Mental illness is real. Mental illness is, is real. The, the reason I want to point this out and talk about it for a moment is because there are people who don't think that it's real. Uh, there are people within the church in particular, some Christians, who would say that mental illness is actually just a social construct. It's um, a category that's been manufactured by secular medical doctors. Some more cynical people might say that it's just for the pharmaceutical industry so that we can manufacture more drugs and make profits. Um, and there are Christians who would say that mental illness is really just some kind of underlying spiritual problem. Um, maybe it's demon possession, or maybe it's just some kind of unconfessed sin in a person's life. And the real reason for mental illness is, is not a sickness in the brain, but some kind of spiritual problem. And so some Christians will reduce mental illness strictly to the spiritual realm. Romans 8... I think calls that 
idea, that interpretation into question. Um, you'll notice in Romans 8, the passage that I just read to you, the emphasis on creation in this passage. <clears throat> now, we have been created by God not just as souls floating through the air, but as embodied souls. We have been created as people with soul and body. We have physical bodies. That's the way God intended it in the Garden of Eden before the fall. That was His perfect intent for His creatures to not live as isolated souls, but as souls in bodies. Our bodies are good, and we're going to have bodies again one day. We have an eternity to look forward to with bodies. So our bodies are not some kind of secondary, ancillary appendage to our existence. It's the way God created us. And one of the results of the fall is that the fall, that is Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in the garden, the occasion for which sin entered the world, has resulted in not just our souls being affected by the fall, but our bodies also. And in fact, the whole physical creation is subject to the effects of the fall. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. If you look at verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, he says. Not willingly, it wasn't the creation's idea, but it was because of him who subjected it. That him, I think, is referring to God who cursed the serpent, Adam, and Eve, and all creation as a result of the fall. Because of him who subjected it to futility, is what Paul is saying. In hope that the creation itself, verse 21, will be set free from what? It's bondage to decay. and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what we're learning here is that the creation is subjected to futility. The created order, physical existence, is in bondage to decay. Now certainly creation includes our physical bodies, right? It's part of creation. Our physical bodies certainly include all parts of our bodies, not just the shell that we can see, but our liver and our stomach and our cartilage and our bones and our brains. Our brains are part of the physical creation. And what Paul seems to be saying here is that all creation, including our bodies and including our brains, are in bondage to corruption. The fall has an effect on our brains. This is part of what we mean by total depravity. Brian mentioned it a moment ago in the confession part of our service, when, when we say that we're totally depraved, that's a theological category we use in, in this tradition quite often, total depravity, by that we don't mean that a person is as totally evil as that person could possibly be. This often is misunderstood. The total doesn't refer to the degree of a person's sin, it refers to the extent of sin in our bodies. We're totally depraved in the sense that there's no part of our humanity that is untouched by sin. Our heart is infected and corrupted. Our bodies are infected and corrupted. Our wills are infected and corrupted and enslaved. And our brains are corrupted by the effects of the fall. Westminster Confession of Faith, our doctrinal statement says this, by this sin, that is the sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents fell 
from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts of faculties of soul and body. Not just our souls, our bodies as well. So, as we look at other illnesses that people suffer, um, abnormal cell growth, for instance, that's cancer. We, we can find a number of secondary causes for that, but the large category, theological category for the cause of cancer is the fall, the corruption of Adam and Eve's rebellion that we all live under. We say that about cancer, and I think we can say a similar thing about the misfiring of synapses and chemical imbalances in our brains that result in mental illness, that those also can be the result of this corruption that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. Mental illness is real. It's a very real effect of living in a fallen world. Now, how is this manifested um, in, in our world? Because there, there is one way that the fall affects our brains, and that is that we are darkened in our understanding. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, there, uh, the, there's, a, there's the futility of our minds is the phrase that Paul uses. Actually, the assurance of pardon that we looked at a moment ago from Colossians talks about the hostility of our minds. So all of us are born into this world, in a sense, with a kind of a mental illness. That is, we're born into this world hostile to God. We're born into this world rejecting His ways, rejecting His goodness, ignoring Him, living in defiance and rebellion against Him, the God who created us, who loves us, who provides for us, who gives us all good things to enjoy, and we rebel against that. That's insanity. We could say that sin in itself is a form of mental illness, a form of insanity, and salvation is, in part, being put back in our right mind. It's being able to see things rightly, to understand the world as it really is, understanding who you are as you really are as a creator of God, responsible and accountable to Him. In Mark chapter 15, there's a demoniac that Jesus heals, and it says He was sitting there after the healing in His right mind. That's what Jesus does for us puts us in our right mind, gets us thinking clearly about things. But that's not the only effect or manifestation of the corruption of the fall on our minds. There is also this kind of organic manifestation that reveals itself in various forms of mental illness. So let me give you some examples of this. There are some broad categories <clears throat> of mental illness. These are all qualify, or, uh, considered to be mental illness. Uh, according to the uh, National Institute of Mental Health. Broad category of, of anxiety, um, which includes conditions like agoraphobia, gets the, the fear of kind of going out or being seen, being among people, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, <clears throat> panic attacks, attention deficit, hyperactivity, ADHD disorders are considered mental illness, <clears throat> um, autism, Asperger's and Rett's syndrome, considered to be mental illness. Uh, as Janet has so well shared with us, yes, eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia, also considered a form of mental illness. Mood disorders, such as bipolar and certain forms of depression. Uh, personality <clears throat> disorders, 
antisocial behavior and paranoia. Um, and then the most severe mental illness would reveal itself in various forms of psychosis, delusional behavior, and uh, forms of schizophrenia. So looking at that list, um, perhaps some of you have been diagnosed or uh, are concerned that maybe you have one of these uh, illnesses in your own life, in your own family. Um, you know, I want to encourage you that if you are concerned about that, that, that you should check that out, that you should go to a doctor. You should find out if indeed you have a diagnosable mental illness because these things are real. It's not imaginary. It's not purely spiritual. It's a result of the fall. Because there are a couple of different extremes in reaction to the reality of mental illness that, that need to be considered and need to be rejected. And the one extreme I've already touched on a little bit, it's what I'm calling the Christian extreme, the spiritual extreme, maybe. And that, again, is this idea that, that the tendency to over-spiritualize it and to say, you know, all we got to do is, is pray over you and, and we can get rid of the demon in you and get your schizophrenia fixed. And certainly you need to pray. I'm not suggesting we don't pray, but I think Christians have done damage to a lot of people suffering from mental illness by giving them the suggestion that somehow this is all your fault. And something this book talks about quite a bit is um, the amount of pain that was experienced by Amy Simpson and others in her family, in the church in particular, by people who tried to spiritualize away their condition. I mean, imagine saying to a, a cancer patient, who has tumors all over his body, to just say, well, you got a demon in you. Let's just pray, pray the demon out. Don't bother going to get surgery. Just confess your sins, and God will heal you. You know, you hear that kind of stuff in prosperity gospel churches, and it's very dangerous. You know, sometimes you'll hear about people who have real physical illnesses, and then they won't go to a doctor, right? You hear about that. You've heard about people who die, children who die, because parents won't take their children to the doctor when they have a physical ailment. And we look at that and we say, that's appalling, that's deplorable. They should take care of their children and take advantage of the medical um, resources that are available to them. We, we often see that kind of thing happen in cultic environments. But for some reason, when it comes to mental illness, we kind of adopt that very same mindset, though. Someone has mental illness and we think, you know, why take them to a doctor? We just need to pray it away. There is a place to get medical help for mental illness. And I do think there are appropriate occasions for using medication to treat mental illness. And in fact, if you're one who has been prescribed medication to deal with a serious mental illness, you need to take your medication. Because one of the issues in dealing with people uh, in, with mental illness, sometimes they, they don't get on their medication, they start getting delusional, and they start being destructive to themselves and to others. But it's a legitimate thing to consider that, yes, there is medical treatment there. It is our responsibility, not even our responsibility, it is the blessing of living in this day and age that we can get some help for our medical illnesses. But the other extreme is what I'm going to call the secular extreme. And the secular extreme says... It's purely biological. 
It's not, there's nothing spiritual about it at all. And God is just irrelevant to the question. And since it's so organic and so biological, all we're gonna do is just pump you full of a bunch of medication and just rely on that alone to fix the problem. So, you know, I would offer a caution also about medication, and that is that it's probably wise to be, to be somewhat cautious also about medication, to be willing to take it, but to be cautious about how much you take and how quickly you take it. It, it does seem to me that there's a tendency in our culture to over-medicate. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a doctor, so correct me if I'm wrong and talk to me afterward. I'd love to hear your opinion on that, but it does seem to be a tendency to think, I'm just gonna take a pill and make all my problems go away. And the Bible does speak to the presence of suffering in our lives, that there is a possibility of growing and deepening in our faith through suffering. I don't think God calls us to do everything we can to eliminate every bit of discomfort that we experience in life. So there is a secular extreme as well. If you're, if you're struggling with mental illness and if you're um, taking a medication, don't allow that to be an excuse for you to refuse to follow Jesus. You're still responsible to pursue Jesus. You're still responsible to grow in faith even though you might be suffering from a mental illness. So Ed Welch is a um, Christian counselor. He says this, with a biblical worldview in place, we can see that physical treatment does not supplant what is most essential to human well-being, which is the normal means of grace. He's speaking to Christians here. That is being in the scriptures, being in prayer, joining the body of believers in worship on Sundays. Those are the ordinary means of grace. And if you're struggling with mental illness, you need to do everything that you can to take advantage of those means of grace. It's the means by which God gives you grace. We are embodied souls, Ed Welch says, who can grow in faith and obedience even when the body is weak, even when we're struggling with a mental illness. So mental illness is real. And I hope that might provide some comfort for those of you who maybe have been struggling with it and have been wondering if it's all in your mind or if it's just all reduced to some spiritual issue. It, it's, it's not imaginary and there is help for you and you should seek it. Second thing to consider, mental illness brings suffering. Mental illness can be <clears throat> the occasion for much suffering. If you return to the passage, notice how this passage begins. It begins with this consideration of suffering. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that's the context of this passage. Because here's another thing you'll hear in the church sometime, is you, know, you shouldn't have mental illness, you shouldn't be dealing with this problem of suffering because Christians live the victorious life. Christians are always happy. Christians don't have problems. <laughs> so what's your problem? You know, sometimes Christians are just very impatient with the suffering in our midst. But here's Paul talking about suffering, and, and notice who it is who suffers. If you look at verse 23, he says it's not only the creation, not only the physical universe in our bodies 
that are subjected to futility and corruption, but it's we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, those of us in whom the Spirit is living. That's a Christian. We are the ones who are dealing with this suffering. And in fact, the way it's expressed is that we are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. I just think that's such an appropriate term to describe what it must be like to suffer from mental illness. And just for the record, I've not suffered from mental illness, so I cannot speak from experience, although apparently a lot of pastors do, I'm told. Uh, but by God's grace, I haven't. But tell me if that describes your condition, if you're one who suffers from mental illness, groaning inwardly. What an appropriate phrase that this, this must be for the person who struggles with mental illness. Because it would seem that it would be very often for that person a very lonely thing. And in fact, this is what um, Amy Simpson says in the book. The suffering of mental illness, whether for the afflicted or for their families, that's a whole other category, the families of those with, uh, who struggle with mental illness, they're suffering as well. This suffering is typically marked by isolation, when people need to experience the love and empathy of their fellow human beings, many fear the church's rejection enough to hide their struggles and not risk exposure, exposure um, at all. <clears throat> uh, in the book, again, there's a, she talks about mental illness as being the no-casserole illness. That someone has cancer, someone has a serious other kind of physical illness, and people are there with the casserole, but... For the person with schizophrenia or bipolar, I don't know, the casseroles don't come quite as quickly. So mental illness is, is marked by this inward groaning. It's part of the suffering that, that goes along with this condition. So providentially, um, Adam Delaplane drew my attention to this. There's um, a student, former student who used to attend here, Jordan Thomas. She's um, led us in worship, actually, a, a couple of times. And she wrote a blog recently, and um, uh, so this is public on her blog, and we've gotten her permission for me to share this. But here's what she wrote in her blog. I am someone who has dealt with and may continue to deal with mental illness. Oh, those two ugly words. No one wants to admit to the whole room, to the whole world, that they've been sick, not just sick in their body, sick in their brain, where it is the most socially unacceptable to be sick. Overall, I have decided to tell people the truth when they seem like they will hear it. I am not ashamed because this is my life. I will not encourage the stigma of mental illness by hiding it away. This is what has happened, and although it feels like a failure in some ways, in most ways it was beyond my control. Um, it, it, what happened, she, she was in grad school and suffered a number of panic attacks that kind of incapacitated her. My pan, and she says, and panic attacks, anxiety, depression, any sort of mental illness are so misunderstood. My desire is to educate people, especially the body of Christ, on how to love people who are going through these struggles. I have already discovered that far more people struggle with panic attacks than I ever imagined, and I want the world to know how to help and love the many, many people who may look and seem normal, but live bravely each day fighting 
an unseen illness. Boy, if that's you today, I I sure hope that we can be a church that can minister to you. Um, As pastor of this church, I want to say that's that's what we want to do. And I don't know if we know how to do it very well, but at least that's our our heart's desire. And I think the people of this church would, would share that. There are a number of ways, however, that the church can um, perhaps exacerbate or increase the, the, the suffering that people deal with um, through a number of ways. One is just this idea, this stigma. Jordan mentioned it in her blog, this stigma that's attached to people with mental illness. We think of them sometimes as violent or dangerous. We kind of get scared of them. We've seen certain movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or or psycho, you know, and, and we get certain ideas in our heads about the way mentally ill people are, and we stereotype them, and because we don't really understand it, we keep our distance. And so that's, for obvious reasons, contributes to this sense of isolation that a lot of mentally ill people experience. <clears throat> Silence. Mentally ill people don't hear the church speaking about this issue very much. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this sermon. But the reason this is so significant is because when people see the church being silent on this issue, they think that God is silent on the issue and think that God doesn't have anything to say to them. And they feel all the more isolated and all the more alone uh, in their struggle. Impatience is something that mentally ill people sometimes experience in, in the church. Um, a lot of people tend to want a quick fix. They, they, they want to solve the problem. They, they want the person to recover and be done with it so we can move on. Now, sometimes that happens, as Janet has testified here this morning, to the glory of God, and by His grace, He can heal people and deliver them from various forms of mental illness. But that doesn't always happen. And in some cases, we need to be prepared to walk with a person struggling with mental illness for their whole lives and through the many peaks and valleys that they might experience in the process. Patience is very important. And then just feeling out of place. Um, you know, we churches in general, I'm just speaking in general, churches in general, we, we have groups for children and for singles and for married and for divorced and for students. Where's the group for the mentally ill? I mean, if, if the statistics are right and 25% of people over 18 in America suffer from mental illness, it does seem a little odd that churches don't have anything for them, it, it, it seems to me. It's a lot of people. So the church is obviously limited. I mean, there's, we're not a mental health facility. <laughs> um, we're, we're not trained. We, we lack expertise in how to reach out to those with mental illness. And so... Um, This isn't intended to be a a guilt trip on churches. I mean, we're trying to find our way here. We're trying to work this out and understand it. And and there is a limit to what we can do because of our lack of expertise. But don't underestimate what love can do in a person's life. What acceptance, a sense of acceptance. You're struggling. you're, You're not getting over this. But we just want you to know we accept you here bringing to the situation the wisdom that comes prayerfully in the power of the Holy Spirit, being patient with people. Um, Those things can go a long way in at least expressing to a mentally ill person the the love of God through His people, 
to those who are struggling. Here's Amy Simpson one more time. She says, the church is supposed to be a community where the hurting, broken, and sin-scarred find rest and redemption, where everyone owns up to being a hurting, broken, and sin-scarred individual rescued from ultimate death by the grace of God. I mean, we've all got something in common with the mentally ill, right? Whether we're mentally ill or not, we're all screwed up. (laughs) The fall has affected us all, and we all share some degree of brokenness, and we need this accepting love that should be here by the power of the gospel. So one other thing, here's the hope ultimately for those struggling with mental illness is that there is redemption for those struggling with mental illness. There is redemption. Verse 18, again, the passage starts, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, mental illness brings with it considerable suffering, but that suffering is not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed. There is a glory, there is a future glory that is going to be revealed to those who trust Jesus, love Him, and follow Him. There is an amazing glory to be experienced. Now, we're not promised that glory in its fullness in this life, but there is a day coming. There's a glory to be revealed. What is this glory? It's the glory of a Savior who has come, soul and body. Jesus, a real man who took on a body. He had a brain, a human brain. He lived his ministry on earth in that body in the humiliation of living in this sin-scarred, broken world, ministering to sinners. He entered into the mess. He drew close to the demoniacs and the lepers and the sick. He cared for them. He loved them. He went to a cross. He offered up his body. He was crucified. He was killed. He shed blood. He died for sins, and he was resurrected from the dead, soul and body, brain included. Jesus was resurrected with a human, glorified, redeemed brain. Jesus didn't need redemption, but he was fully glorified in his resurrection. And what the promise is to you who trust in Christ and look to him, if you look at verse 23, here's the promise. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, what? As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, look at that, at the end of verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. The promise of the gospel is not just our souls being resurrected, but our bodies too. And that means for you who trust in Christ, what you have in your future is a resurrected, glorified brain. That's what Jesus promises to you. And that's a brain that will, have, will suffer no longer from depression or bipolar disorder or autism or anorexia or schizophrenia or panic attacks. That future is promised to you. That day is coming. I don't know when, but it's coming. The day when all of God's redeemed will be freed from every inkling of mental illness. Don't you want that? 
I mean, if you haven't come to faith in Christ, that's what you need to do, whatever your situation is, whether you're mentally ill or not. But this is about mental illness. If you have mental illness, I hope you're not just looking to some doctor to save you. Look to Jesus to save you. He is the only one who has an ultimate, eternal, ongoing, fully sufficient cure for you. And it's told us right here, the redemption of our bodies upon Jesus coming again. In the meantime, here's what we need to do as a church. We, we need to move toward people in our midst who are suffering from mental illness and not run away from them. We need to be willing to enter into their lives. Um, don't be afraid. Treat mentally ill people like anybody else. Ask them questions. Hang out with them. Get to know them. Treat them normally. Don't feel like you have to be an expert in order to fix their problems. Don't feel like you have to fix their problems. Jesus ultimately will fix their problems. What you're called to do is to love them, to be patient with them, to draw close to them. And who knows, maybe the Spirit will work in the life, lives, life of somebody here who would be willing someday to start a support group here at New Life uh, for people who suffer from various kinds of mental illness. And we can get together and um, walk together uh, through the suffering that this entails in the hope of the resurrection of our bodies. Um, it's you know, pretty hard to kind of come up with a song, a concluding song, when you've done a sermon on, on mental illness. You know, the hymnal doesn't have a section of songs on, on mental illness, but knowing the experience of those who suffer from this, the, the loneliness and the isolation, it, it just seems like an appropriate song would be, what a friend we have in Jesus. I mean, he carries all our griefs. We can take everything to him. Um, if you're sensing that isolation, you're sensing that detachment, you're sensing that loneliness, there is a friend in Jesus. And so it's appropriate for us to sing about that now. So let's stand and sing. Our God in heaven, thank you so much that you give us hope. Uh, we acknowledge that this, this world is so full of suffering and pain and sorrow. We long for your return. But thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you that it's true. It's true. And that resurrected bodies are ours through faith in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.